Hi there and welcome. You're listening to the Diving In podcast, brought to you by Virginia Seymour and Louise Jones. This podcast is part of a lifelong conversation between friends about the books we're reading and the issues they make us think about. That also goes for the movies and television we're watching and the podcasts we're currently hooked on. We might even talk about what's in the news and anything else we're diving into this week. Diving in. Hello, divers. Louise and I have been looking forward to this conversation. Now that we've managed one episode from two separate locations, we're hoping to be able to finesse the sound a little and focus <laughs> more on the conversation than on all the equipment and what, what everything's doing. So we hope you all have a big cup of tea ready and a nice slice of cake, perhaps, so that you can join us as we dive into all the books. Last episode, we talked about pandemic books. A friend of ours had asked us to provide some suggestions for books about pandemics and epidemics and adversity, which we did. And there are, of course, plenty of people who really don't want to go there. Absolutely. Some people are are struggling. Yes, and they really want to escape. So today, as promised, we're going to recommend the sort of books that Louise and I like to read when we want to escape from the world. And there are so many different types of books that can achieve that. So we'll try and cover a few different types. And for sure, Lou and I will have quite different books that we use for escapism. We're also going to discuss the second and final half of Middlemarch for those of you that have Mm. been reading along with us which I'm really looking forward to. Yeah, me too. And we're also going to discuss uh, the books that we've each read in the past fortnight. So in terms of books to comfort or uplift or provide escapism, I think you and I go in quite different directions, don't we? Yeah, I think we do. (laughs) (laughs) If I'm wanting a cosy and comforting book, I tend to still... I really still need very good writing. That's always a requirement for me. And fortunately, there is plenty of that around once you know where to look. And I'm probably happy with less plot or less drama. When I'm wanting to escape, I'm quite happy if not a lot happens, (laughs) which (laughs) sounds bizarre, but I just find that less stressful for some reason. So my go-to books... And I know I'm not alone in in loving these ones. Uh, The Diary of a Provincial Lady by E.M. Delafield, which Mm. is hilarious. It's uh, gentle. It's funny. It's got a lot of beautiful qualities to it. There's actually three other books in the series. There's one where she goes to Moscow, which I found fascinating, sort of after Russia opened up. I still think about that book actually, and there's one where she does a tour of America. None of them are as funny, but they're all really good books still. Uh, They're all really enjoyable. Another series that I love, which is not dissimilar, are the Mrs. Tim books by D.E. Stevenson. There's four of them, Mrs. Tim of the Regiment, The Diary of an Officer's Wife, also extremely funny and 
really enjoyable and escapist and set a long way in the past. So really quite a, a pleasant read. And there's another little series, little pair of books by a woman named Joyce Dennis, who wrote Henrietta's War and Henrietta Sees It Through. And I think she's also an officer's wife in wartime, and she's also quite funny, and there's sort of a diary. So there's, there's sort of three quite similar series there that if you like one, you'll like the others. Ginny, I think that Henrietta's War has been made into a TV serial or a TV... Oh, okay, could have been. Yeah, that rings a bell to me. Okay, we'll, we'll, we'll look that up. She lives in a close-knit Devonshire village. Yeah, all right, we'll have a look for that. I also love her escapism, Nina Stibby, who is a British writer. She sort of came to everyone's attention with her first book, which is Love, Nina. But all her books are hilarious and, and a great uh, source of escapism. I also love the Miss Reed books. They're, the author is called Miss Reed. It's actually a woman named Dora Saint. She has two series. There's a Thrush Green series and a Fairacre series, and they're these cosy English village stories. Not a lot happens, but they're quirky characters. They're warm, absolutely gorgeous. Love them. I've read all of them many times. And I often listen to them on audio to go to sleep because I know that they'll just send me off into a happy sleep. (laughs) Um, (laughs) I also love Jane Austen for escapism. And then another series that I quite like for escapism is the Flavia de Luce books by Alan Bradley. She's the very bright little um, scientist. We might talk about her in another episode because she's a fantastic character. He's a Canadian writer, but the books are all set in Britain post-World War II, and he pretty much nails it. He really convinces you that he is writing from that time period, so... They're a fantastic series to get stuck into. Yeah, I think you, I think you recommended those books to me a while ago and they're delightful. Mm. They really are delightful. Yeah. And finally, I would say I, I also love Anthony Trollope mm. for escapism. So that's what I go for. What about you, Lou? Well, I thought long and hard about what I'm sort of looking for in a book at the moment. And look, like some of our listeners, I certainly don't want to read anything at the moment that mentions apocalypse or disease (laughs) and particularly anything dystopian. But even when we're not in the environment of COVID-19, I don't particularly want to read anything dystopian anyway. It's just not my thing at all. Yeah. I think my main criteria at the moment is to read a book that I can become completely lost in. So I am looking for a big story. I'm looking for lots of really richly drawn characters, preferably some interesting family dynamics and a really busy plot. So for me, I am looking to sort of blank out the noise from outside. I want to block it out completely and I, and I do want a lot of drama. Yeah, that makes sense. I can I can understand that, yeah. Yeah, so gentle won't cut it for me at the moment. No, no, it wouldn't, <laughs> it wouldn't distract you enough at all. No. So I've come up with two books that I absolutely love to recommend. They're completely different, but they both have all of these characteristics in spades and they're also both written against the backdrop of a very significant period in history. I'm not necessarily into historical fiction, but I do like a dramatic historical context because I think that adds the weight to a big story, you know. Yeah, so yeah. And they definitely also I think fall into the category of books that 
you may have put off reading because they involve a very big time commitment, not unlike Middlemarch in many respects, which we chose pre-COVID-19. But I think that makes these books perfect reading for isolation, assuming, of course, you're not homeschooling or, you know, Um, otherwise have a very busy household, which I do appreciate some listeners do have. So we're not insensitive to that. So the first one for me is War and Peace by Leo Tolstoy. Oh, yes. And I guess it's just a giant of a book. It's very long, but it's not difficult to read at all. It's the story of essentially five Russian families. They're aristocratic families. And it's set in the period from, I think, 1805 to 18. 20. So it's sort of the period before and after France invades or Napoleon invades Russia. And it's the story of those family members who are living within Russian society at the time and and everything that happens to them. So you follow, you know, their personal sagas and obviously naturally many of the men go off to fight. So you have on the one hand the parallel of what's happening to the individuals in the book alongside what's happening to the country. So it's a book that embraces significant and deep change for the country and also for the characters. Which is really quite suitable for now, isn't it? It is, yeah, and it's very dramatic. And for the characters and for the country, there's sort of this sweeping coming of age, I suppose. So, you know, and what I love about it, there's characters that you absolutely despise and there's characters that you absolutely fall in love with. So it's a soaring book for me. Yeah, I agree. And it's got incredible colour and warmth. So if it is a book that you have put off reading, I would recommend War and Peace. That's actually a brilliant idea, Lou, because, you know, people are describing the the coronavirus as a type of war that we're fighting. And in many ways, that's exactly what it is and the and people's response to it and so it's a fantastic book to be reading along and seeing the analogies of yes. how people respond and the impact on the political becoming personal and and our personal lives reflecting yeah yeah, yeah. and then the other book that I've read which you know in some ways there are similarities but completely different is um, a suitable boy by Vikram Seth. I still haven't read this book, Lou. I shouldn't even admit that. No, of course you should admit it. (laughs) Everybody should admit it. It's great. There's lots of of big classics I have not read at all. Not that this is necessarily a classic, but it is in its own genre, I think. It was written in the the 1990s and I read it in the 1990s, but then I read it again this summer. It was one of the books that I read over the summer. It's set in India in a newly independent post-partition India, 1951. It is a huge read. I concede that it does take a little while to get into the rhythm of the book. I think my edition is 1,400 pages. So like War and Peace, it's a very big book, but it's really worth it. So A Suitable Boy is the, it's a, again, it's a coming-of-age story of Lata. She is an independently-minded university student in North India in 1941. And on the one hand, you have Lata's mother, who is determined to find her daughter a husband, hence the title of the book, A Suitable Boy. Right. But Lata, on the other hand, is deeply conflicted because she feels this pull towards family duty and obligation, but she's also drawn to the exciting idea of making her own romantic choices with someone else. And sort of as a mirror, this is also a period of huge upheaval for India. India is also striving for its own identity as an independent nation. So 
Lata is embarking on a a period of self-discovery, as is India, because India is about to go to the polls to decide its future. So, you know, you have the backdrop of the first democratic general election in India. So, again, lots and lots of richly drawn characters, family relationships are central, dramatic historical background. Ground. This just ticks all the boxes for me. Mm, yeah. And strangely, Virginia, we talk about our devices listening to us or watching us. So I was typing up my notes for this episode. <gasps> no. And what popped up on my feed is that the BBC have done a six-part adaptation of A Suitable Boy, which is due out in June this year. Unbelievable. So everybody, you have six weeks to read this book. <laughs> That's incredible. Yeah, so um, I'm really looking forward to that. That's very prescient of you, Lou. I'm very well, impressed. Uh, well, I, I had absolutely no idea, but... Um... Oh, I think you did. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, but... <laughs> so, obviously, they must have filmed this all before COVID-19 Yeah, struck. absolutely, um, yeah. Yeah. Um, it says it's due out in June. Of course, that might that might change, but we'll see anyway. So, look, apart from choosing a big book like either of those, I guess the other genre I gravitate towards um, is crime fiction, as I always do. Yeah, I thought you might say that. (laughs) And particularly a sort of good old-fashioned police procedural. And what I like about good crime fiction is that it's often detail-intensive, so you can sort of lose yourself in solving the crime yourself, which, which of course, I always try to do. And even the more sort of gory or confronting crime, I still kind of feel I'm removed. I'm a bit of an observer, whereas I think with the dystopian fiction or pandemic or plague-themed fiction, I don't feel like I have any control. And I'm sure somebody could psychoanalyse this. (laughs) But you have control over the outcome of the procedural (laughs) police case. I know, I know. Whether they're going to catch you Oh dear! So we've we've covered lots of crime fiction before in our Who Done It episode. <laughs> I should just tell you, Virginia's lost it at the moment. I can see her on the Skype. <laughs> oh, just oh, the dear. image of you, sort of feeling like you know you really need to track down this witness. <laughs> You're worried that the killer's going to get away well, if you don't get onto it. As you know, in a former life. <laughs> yes. 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 We have mentioned lots of crime fiction series before. We covered lots in our episode five, Who Done It? That was such a fun episode. It was to a do. fun I think episode. We need to do another one of those. Yeah, it was great. Uh, you know, it's such a popular genre. Yeah. I'm just going to mention very briefly two sort of classic police procedural series. The first is Ruth Rendell's Chief Inspector Wexford series. They are great. Of course, she also wrote under another, do we call it a nom de plume, Barbara Vine. And the Barbara Vine series tends to be more psychological. And Ruth Rendell won lots of gold and silver dagger crime fiction awards before she died in 2015. So Chief Inspector Wexford, or Reg as he's known, is very thoughtful. He's a very reflective, sort of socially aware man, family man. But he has a gruff exterior and he's often underestimated by the crooks. Love it. And he has a sidekick, Mike Burden, who is... Quite a layered character as well. So, uh, look, I really recommend this series. There's 23 Wexford novels for you to choose from, uh, and many, if not all of them, are available on Kindle and audiobooks, and obviously they're a great library favourite as well, so you could easily get your hands on these books. And then probably one of my most 
favourite fictional police officers of all time is Inspector John Rebus, and he is the central character in most of Ian Rankin's books. Mm, that's a real favourite of my husband's. Yeah. and mm. they're set in Edinburgh. And, you know, he is a very flawed man. He's He drinks too much. He's cynical. He doesn't follow any rules. He certainly ignores the chain of command at any, on every occasion. <laughs> and he has these disastrous personal relationships. And what I love about those books is Edinburgh is very present and atmospheric in the Rebus books. And there are some great characters from the underbelly of Edinburgh as well who rather unconventionally Rebus befriends on occasion. I think there's about 19 Rebus books, maybe even a couple more. So I can really recommend that's a series to dive into. They're widely available in format, different formats and also in libraries as well. So they would be my two series. They're great ones, Lou. Now, today we're going to talk about the second half of Middlemarch, which is from Chapter 43 right through to the very end. So if you are reading along with us and you haven't quite finished now might be a good time to do a little bit of a fast forward. Do you think, Lou? Yeah, I, I agree because from the get-go, the second half, there is a major spoiler, <laughs> <laughs> which has an impact on the whole second half, on, on many characters. So as Virginia says, fast forward. I'm going to talk today again about Dorothea because she was the yeah. character that I talked about last episode. So from Dorothea's perspective, the second half of Middlemarch and all of her sort of future direction is set in play by the decisions that are made by her husband, Kasorban, yes. before he before he dies. <laughs> and there's the spoiler. Ta-da! <laughs> Kasorban has essentially become so blind and prejudiced against his cousin, Will Ladislav. He thinks that if he were to die, Will is for sure going to manipulate and inveigle himself into Dorothy's affections in order to get his hands on Kosorban's money. So Kosorban writes a codicil to his will to the effect that Dorothea will get nothing if she marries Ladislav. Now, of course, it doesn't occur to him that Will might genuinely have feelings for Dorothea. He's not thinking of what is best for Dorothea at all, whom, you know, the woman whom he is supposed to love. He assumes the worst of his cousin and he assumes that he's motivated by money. I actually understood that he thought there might be a frisson between them. Yes, but I thought that he thought Will's attentions were motivated by getting his hands okay. on, on money. Yeah, yeah, that's probably right. I think possibly when Dorothea wakes him up at night and says we should give some of our money to Will because he was done out of the, the, the money from the grandmother. Yes. I think that's when it all started, didn't it? And yes, and, of course, they've had the time. They met in Italy and he's he's very conscious of that they have a connection. But whether he thinks it's a genuine yes, I think romantic. He, yes, uh, or whether he yeah. thinks Will's intentions are. Just at the back of it all is getting his hands on the estate yes. that he missed out on. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and, of course, this is a bit more subtle, but he, he also assumes that Dorothea would be motivated by money, that the codicil would either stop her in her tracks which is, of course, contrary to everything she's ever said to him about her own needs and how she doesn't need money and she wants to yes. be useful. And so, as we foreshadowed, da-da, Kasorban <laughs> dies. And then, of course, you know, the, the men come gathering. The significant men in Dorothea's life, Mr Brooks and Sir James Chetham, like her late husband, 
also think that they know best. <laughs> yes. And they decide that they will keep the codicil from Dorothea for the time being. So here we have this theme which George Eliot returns to a couple of times in the book where the men discuss and manage the woman's welfare without including her in the process. <laughs> yeah. And in Dorothea's case, I think I'd be interested with your take on this, but Brooks and Chatham are motivated by a number of things. I think Mr. Brook genuinely cares for his niece. Um, yes, he loves I her. I think he does. And he yep. doesn't want to upset her so soon after the funeral. That's right. But, of course, they're also a little bit preoccupied by, you know, the possibility of scandal and reputations being ruined. I think that's a huge motivator, particularly for Chatham. Yes, because they might imagine if they hear, if the public hears about or the community of Middlemarch hears about the codicil, they might imagine that there has been something going on between Dorothea and uh, Will. And then, of course, later in the book, we also learn that Sir James is motivated by the fact that were Dorothea to remarry, any son that she has will become heir to Mr Brooks' estate, Tipton Grange, rather than yes. any child he has with Celia. So, of course, his intentions are not entirely pure. That's right. But, of course, as you would predict, the machinery of Middlemarch society and gossip is never going to allow a secret to remain no. for very long. <laughs> and so Dorothea is seeking answers to the discussions she's had with Kosorban um, before he died, and she demands access to her papers. And, of course, her sister Celia cannot contain herself. No. And she, of course, tells Dorothea about the code assault. <laughs> and I thought I might just mention two other families here, the Vincys and the Garths. Mr Vincy is the new mayor of Middlemarch. I think we met him at the engagement party. And he is part of the new upwardly mobile middle class. He's a manufacturer and two of his children are significant characters in Middlemarch, Fred and Rosamond. They're both highly indulged by their mother, Fred in particular, uh, and their father disapproves of this because he, of course, knows the value of earning money as opposed to inheriting it. Rosamond aspires to live well. Her sole motivation is to marry well, I think. Both her and Fred have been educated and this has sort of given them expectations, I think. So Rosamond judges the way for her to get on in life, I think, is to marry well. And that's probably her motivation for marrying Tertius Lydgate, who's the new doctor in town. Yeah. She does love him, I think, but she's certainly motivated by cementing her position in society. Would you think that's... that's Definitely. Yeah. And, of course, he has aristocratic relations, which helps as well. But, of course, as we know, Rosamond's life doesn't go to plan. And a little bit like the significant men in Dorothea's life, Rosamond's husband and, to a lesser extent, her father decline to discuss important matters with her as well. They keep things from her. So, again, that's that theme. Now, Fred, on the other hand, he doesn't want to enter the clergy, which is what his father intends him to do post-education, and he's lazy and he gambles. And he has this expectation that he will inherit Peter Featherstone's estate, Stone Court. But when this doesn't happen and he realises that he might lose his love interest, who is Mary Garth, I think that's the catalyst to sort of pivot him in a different direction to his sister. It's sort of the making of him, actually. It is. It is, isn't it? 
So he seeks the counsel of some good men in Middlemarch, uh, Mr. Fairbrother and Mary's father, Caleb Garth, and that sort of sets Fred on a more righteous path, doesn't it, really? Yeah. Uh, so the Garths, I think, represent all that is honest and hardworking and uncompromising in Middlemarch. Caleb Garth and his daughter Mary are both put in compromising situations in the book. Yes. And on each occasion, their integrity carries the day. I was about to say they both act with integrity. Yeah. And, of course, Mary Garth tells Fred Vincey she won't marry him if he joins the clergy, so he must otherwise go away and find a way to work hard. That's something that he actually really does want to do. Yes. And, of course, we know that her father ultimately mentors Fred and helps him with that. And then this is what I thought was rather a lovely touch because what's interesting is that unlike the other men in Middlemarch, Caleb Garth is a man of very few words, yet he does consult his daughter and he does discuss important things with her. So where there are matters that are of importance to her, he believes her opinion matters unlike the men, of course, in Dorothea and Rosamond's lives. Although, interestingly, he didn't consult his wife when he went guarantor for <laughs> no, Fred's. No. <laughs> but, you yes. know, he's obviously a man of his time where he thinks uh, that he's the man of the family and he can decide what to do with yes. the family money. Yes, that's true. I look at you honest, I hadn't thought about that. And he also is a little bit delinquent in telling his wife about Mary's interests because, of course, Mary's mother wants her to marry the clergyman, Fairbrother. But clearly Mary is quite an indomitable woman. She's, you know, she's quite extraordinary. and She's quite steely, isn't she? Yes, she's, and she knows intelligent. what she wants. And, yeah, she's a really good character. And her father responds to that. So, yeah, yes, that's quite true. interesting. So I guess Dorothea's feelings for Will take a bit of a detour because she sees him with Rosamond and she assumes that Will and Rosamond have feelings for each other. But, you know, it's quite predictable the way that is resolved. As the reader has known, it always would be, I think, anyway. And essentially, Dorothea's goodness means that she puts aside her feelings to help Rosamond. And Rosamond, once she knows she's going to be okay, then she is prepared to also put her feelings aside for Dorothea. But only when she knows that she's going to be okay. Yes, Dorothy is definitely the bigger person. Yes, she's purer of heart, isn't she? And, of course, Will and Dorothea have a heart-to-heart and, predictably, we, we know the end. It's a fairly conventional and predictable ending. And, of course, the choices that Dorothea makes to choose a life with Will as a wife and a mother, they have generated so much discussion in essays and feminist literature and and we're going to talk about that next episode, I think. Yes, I'm sure that will come up, yeah, for sure. And I think you've examined some other characters and themes. Yes, yes, I have. So I thought I would talk about a few of the recurring themes of the book that interested me or that I sort of noticed as I was going along because other than the feminist issues which arise when you look at those female characters that you've talked about, and really they are... The feminist issues are really the most interesting to me. But the sort of if there's a hierarchy, the next themes that interested me in this are greed, ambition and disappointment. Mm. And some of those themes overlap or they're two sides of the same coin. But I thought it might be just fun to, to look at the way George Eliot 
analyzes those themes because greed is present in many aspects of the story. And there are a number of characters who display a real hunger for money and not just money, I suppose, greed for power as well. And position. Is another, and position and status. So we have young, young Fred, Vincy, who gambles. And he, he, but, you know, admittedly he was a very young man when he does all this. And he gambles on his expectation, really, that he's going to inherit from Peter Featherstone. Uh, he thinks he's got that as a safety net. And uh, as we know, that doesn't really turn out the way he expected and in the best way, really, for Fred. All of Mr Featherstone's relatives are like vultures at the reading of the will. Yes. It's just a fabulous <laughs> scene, them all sitting around, isn't it? <laughs> all sort of with their own interests and their own <laughs> analysis of why they and justifications of why they should inherit, you know, some of the estate. It's just it's a fascinating insight into human greed. And, and they were all in the house before he actually died. Yeah, all, all just hovering around, <laughs> waiting for the poor man to pass away. <laughs> just and and quite shameless about it, really. Mm. Is it? That's that was the other fascinating thing. No embarrassment about it at all. <laughs> and then, of course, we have my you know favourite, the one that I really love to hate, which is Mister Bullstrode. Oh, yes. And he is the ultimate in greed. He married a wealthy widow early in life, and he concealed from his new wife that he had married this widow, and then concealed the whereabouts of her missing daughter. So she went ahead and married him and then he inherited a great deal of money from her. He worked for a disreputable pawnbroker. And then in the story, he wants to continue to acquire property and wealth and position in Middlemarch. And, and sort of erstwhile maintaining this sort of deeply religious, pious yes. front. It's incredible. Yes. It's the hypocrisy of it. And it's a very common presentation, I think, where often the most hypocritical, pious people are often hiding some terrible, deep, dark secret or mm. terrible, ugly side of themselves. And I think they're often hoping to hide it from themselves as well as hiding it from the world. So he he's the sort of um, personification of greed in the book, I think. And the other one who is incredibly greedy is Mr Raffles, the the evil, greedy blackmailer mm. who comes in and he's dressed in black and sort of comes back from the past. He's an opportunist, isn't he? He's a real opportunist. Yeah, and uh, he realises that he can, uh, he knows a secret and he can make some money out of it. He, he seemed quite Dickensian to me as a he character. He certainly did, yes. You know? Yeah, he would have been so at home in a Dickens novel. He's so good. You can just picture him yeah. and really sort of characterful, ugly face. Yes, and, brilliant. Uh, and then there's also Joshua Rigg Featherstone, who is the illegitimate son of Peter Featherstone, who comes out of nowhere and inherits Peter Featherstone's estate, much to the dismay of all those vultures that are <laughs> sitting around at the reading of the will. <laughs> Uh, he can't wait, really, to sell mm. off his inheritance. He doesn't have any sense of family pride or any desire to sort of um, become a caretaker of this beautiful parcel of land, like a lot of landowners in Britain. He just wants to sell it off. And I think at some point George Eliot describes it as he saw the stone cottage or whatever it was called as uh, a piece of gold or some, mm. some phrase like that. And how interesting also that... 
the tension between that sort of middle class, I want the money and, and also inheritance, the sort of two different ways of, and he, he clearly wanted the money. He just wanted the money and he wanted to get his hands on the cash and, and get out of there. He had no intention of staying in Middlemarch. Uh, he was out of there. So he's a, he's a great personification of, an, of a different sort of greed. And then there's Dr Lydgate who probably isn't motivated by greed in quite the same way as some of these other characters, but he does try and satisfy his wife's consumerist expectations to the point where he goes into serious debt and he has to borrow money from the horrible Mr Bullstrode in order to stave off bankruptcy because he has been living beyond his means. So that's a sort of a different type of greed again. It's sort of uh, wanting to sort of keep up with the Joneses, so to speak. So I really liked the way there were all those different types sort of every sort of possible type of greed is is displayed in the book and in all those different sort of manifestations. And another theme I loved is ambition. It's a very common thread through all these characters. And I think George Eliot is holding a mirror up to humankind here and she's showing us that ambition has many diverse manifestations. You've got Dorothea's ambition, which is a good sort of ambition. It's cast as a very positive one. She wants to make a difference in the world. She's set up a school in the village for the poorer members of the community. She wants to build better cottages so that their quality of life is improved. And she wants to help her husband with his work and and make a difference with him in an academic or in a scholarship sense. So her ambition is cast as a sort of a desirable aim. And then you've got Mr. Casorban, who is ambitious. And in fact, he is over ambitious (laughs) in his (laughs) academic aims. Um, And he is ambitious in a way that he can never achieve um, beyond his um, personal capabilities, uh, sadly. Uh, You've got Dr. Lydgate, who is ambitious for his own career. Initially, he didn't want to marry uh, Rosamond until his, or he didn't want to marry anybody until his career was more advanced. And he's also ambitious for the progress and the reform of the medical profession and the profession in general. Um, And this is manifested in his involvement in the new hospital. So his ambition is slightly different again. You've got Mr. Bullstrode. Now, where do I even start with his ambition? (laughs) It's so naked, isn't it? It's It's naked ambition. He's the personification of sort of the worst type. So you've got perhaps Dorothea at the good end of the spectrum and then you've got Mr Bullstrode at the the worst (laughs) end with that veneer of uh, religious piety sort of over the top of it. But he really is a man who wants to make money and have power and position and status and control all those things. So he's just horrible. Mm. Uh, And then you've got Mr Brooke, Dorothea and Celia's uncle, and he is ambitious as well, but he's ambitious in a different way. He becomes quite ambitious for social reform Mm. through his newspaper and wanting to go into Parliament. That's how his ambition sort of manifests and through taking Will Ladislav under his wing, you know, because he knows that he can't probably achieve those outcomes off his own bat. So he he recognises that Will has some energy, he's a young man, 
So he takes him under his wing in order to sort of further those ambitions. And then you've got Mr Vincey, the mayor, and I think he's socially ambitious. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, He does a lot of entertaining that they cannot afford, really, which I found that was he was quite an interesting character. And then you've got Sir James Chetham, who's ambitious because when it looks as though Mr Brooke is thinking that he will change the entail on his property away from Dorothea's children if she marries Will. Sir James can see an opening here for his own children to inherit. So he, the dollar signs start blinking in his eyes, you know, when that conversation starts to take place. So I thought that was quite fascinating. And he's very much part of the old society, isn't he? He's Chetham is sort of the old. Yes. Whereas Brooks is making a little bit of a foray into the new. Um, yes. The reform. In a slightly bumbling, yes. perhaps not incredibly successful yes. way, but but well-meaning. Yes, <laughs> perhaps not with any follow-through. <laughs> <laughs> That's true. That's true. But he's, his heart is yes, in the right it place. Yes, it is. And then the other theme, which I thought was a, a very much a dominant theme in the book, is disappointment. Oh, yes. Uh, you've, you've got, <laughs> there's so much disappointment. Oh. Um, You've got Mrs Garth who suffers terrible disappointment when Caleb, her husband, has gone guarantor for the young Fred Vincey and she has to give up all the money that she's been Mm. saving for one of her young son's education to meet the debt that Fred's incurred. And she really doesn't say much at all. She just sort of meekly recognises that they're going to have to give up their money and things turn out fine yes. for them in the end, which is which is good. Yep. But I really felt her disappointment then. She'd been scrimping and saving. They don't have much money. And to see her husband just sign this guarantee was just awful. Which just, it sort of did seem a bit out of character, didn't it, really? Given that he had his radar so finely tuned with Bulstrode and other people, but it's almost like, well, it's prophetic in some ways because he almost sensed the decency in Fred, perhaps. Yes, I think that was it. I think he had so much confidence in him. He probably saw that he was a good person and he... And loved his daughter. He was over-optimistic about yeah. him and, and uh, I think, and he suffered. I think he was equally as disappointed in Fred yes, doing absolutely. that. But it was actually his wife who, who actually had to cough up the money, the large portion of it. There's a lot of disappointment in marriage in this book. You know, there's Dorothea's marriage to Casorban, Rosamond's marriage to uh, Tertius Lydgate. Not that she really had reason to be disappointed. She was just spoiled. And this always comes back to expectation, doesn't it? Yes. Uh, I couldn't even really get a handle on what went wrong with her. I don't know whether she was just a slightly vacuous person or whether they were just totally ill-suited. He was more intellectual and she was just a... She's sort of described as incredibly beautiful and blonde and I sort of pictured this sort of very pale blonde sort of sort of airhead. Yes, but he, he also has his part to play because, as you said earlier, he, he, he hadn't intended to marry and yet when he did marry her because she was so beautiful, he intended that she would be an ornament to his career. Yes. Which, of course, she was never going to be just an ornament to his career. And, in fact, if you want an ornament, you need to pay for the ornament. (laughs) Exactly. Yes, yes. And he did not have the means. So there was a lot of disappointment on both parties' sides, I think. 
there's Mrs. Bulstrode's disappointment when she discovers mm. what her husband is. I really felt for her. So did I. You know, and she goes up when she finds out what happened mm. with Mr. Raffles when he died and she goes up to her room and then just stays there sort of absorbing and just sitting with it and letting it sink in. Mm. And then she goes downstairs and you know she's going to stick with him. Mm. It was very powerfully written. For me, that is the best scene in the book. I think it's extraordinarily written. Yeah. Beautifully written and Mm. you felt each of their feelings, the restraint and the overwhelming thoughts and feelings that she was going through. It was incredible. Mm. Um, So just a profound disappointment there. Even perhaps Mrs Garth, I suppose, with that that disappointment with Caleb to some extent, Mm. you know, with the way he'd behaved. I think you have uh, Mr Kasorban is a disappointment to himself. Yes. I don't Uh, know why I'm laughing because it's just pitiful (laughs) and sad. It's. It's, it's he's sort of the saddest character. But he is because he's pompous he, and and so you don't yeah. necessarily, but you you still feel that the agony yeah. of it. I know, I know. It's it's actually quite tragic. Mm. But, and I, in some ways, I think that's almost the worst type of disappointment mm. to be a disappointment to yourself. Mm. You've got Mary Garth, who's disappointed in Fred's gambling and and Fred's disappointment in not inheriting the wealth that he thought he was going to inherit. Mm. Although, as we know, I think that ended up being the making of him. I really liked the way that George Eliot dealt with all these different types of disappointments. They were all handled in various different ways. And it could be said that the ending is a little bit neat Mm. in the way that Mary gets over her disappointment in Fred and her love for him prevails. She's sort of portrayed as a as a good woman mm. who has a, a steadying influence on her sort of less mature man. But actually I think that's an incredibly realistic dynamic. I, I um when I sat on a, a regulatory board for many years and we often had to assess whether to grant an occupational licence to applicants. And they were usually young men who had had sort of minor criminal convictions in their youth, Mm. you know, assault and things often that involved alcohol. And over and over and over, they would go into the witness box. And the story was so often that when they were young, they were, you know, with their laddish mates and they drank too much and, you know, got involved in fights or did silly things. And then once these guys had met their wives or girlfriends, they'd straightened themselves out and there were no more offences. And you could often see on the criminal record, there'd be all these offences up to a certain date. And then they'd say, oh, that was the date I met my Mm. wife. And then there's sort of nothing. (laughs) And it is such a... The influence um, of a good woman. Yeah. Uh, So, you know, initially I thought, oh dear, you know, Mary, you know, they had that little finale with... Mary sort of making him into a, the good farmer. But I actually do think that is a very realistic pattern yeah. for many relationships. And the pivot was very believable. Yeah. So I thought they were all great themes and, I, and, and handled in very different ways and with a lot of insight and 
a real understanding of the human condition. Mm. So, mm. yeah, I loved all those themes. Oh, look, it's been a great exercise reading this book. I've just really, really enjoyed it. Yeah. Really got into it after the first few chapters. Just I think it did take us a little while, but then maybe that was also the conditions that it, that we ended up reading during as well. It was all a little bit. Definitely. I think it was externally there was a lot going on for me mm. and I wasn't able to delve into it and but once you've got a few chapters under your belt and you know all the characters I then really dived right in and I loved it and I think that that's the common experience of listeners as well and people I've bumped into who are listening to the podcast and spoken to they've said exactly the same that they're just absolutely loving it once they got into it so um it's been a lovely lovely thing to do yeah I'm really glad we chose Mm. it we'll have to choose carefully because we've set a high bar we have Louise if we choose another because this all started because we were talking about classics that we've never read yes and as we both know, there is still a ton that you and I haven't read. Yeah. So we've got a, a big uh, selection, but it'd be fun to do this again. Yeah, it would. It would be very nice. Maybe doing one le- leading up to Christmas, maybe we should pick yeah, another classic. Yeah. yeah, So we'll have to think carefully so we choose something that's just as good. So we were going to talk about books that we've read over the past fortnight. What have you been reading, Lou? I've been reading The Night Watchman. I'm holding it up to Virginia. It's got a beautiful cover of grasses and fire. It's really striking cover. Yeah, gorgeous. Certainly for the cover for this hemisphere anyway. I've seen one other cover, which is also quite interesting. This book was released relatively recently this year, written by Louise Erditch, Erditch. It's her 16th or 17th novel, prolific writer. I don't think I've ever read her. Neither have I, but this book has certainly means that I'll be reading a lot more. The, oh. the novel is set in North Dakota on the Turtle Mountain Reservation, which is the reservation of Erditch's own Native American tribe, the Chippewa. Uh, and apologies to any of our... American listeners, if I'm mispronouncing some of these words, I'm very happy to be corrected. There are some notes in the back of the book, and the author explains that she was recovering from an illness and looking for some inspiration. So she reread some of the letters that her grandfather Patrick had written in 1953 and 1954. And 1954 was, in fact, the year she was born. And these letters he wrote as the chairman of the Turtle Mountain Band of the Chippewa Advisory Committee, and they were written in response to a bill that was being introduced into the US Congress to terminate the Chippewa tribe's rights to the reservation land and to enforce involuntary uh, resettlement in the cities nearby. So this is a work of fiction, The Night Watchman, but it's inspired by the letters and the period, and her grandfather is the model for the protagonist, Thomas. Right. So Thomas Wazhashk is the night watchman at the factory on the reservation where jewel bearings are made for ammunition and watches. He's also the chair of the Turtle Mountain Band Advisory Committee. So it's rather lovely in the same way that night after night he watches over the factory, he also watches over his community in that role. Yeah. He's very diligent because this is a good job and he wants to keep it. And as a result of the job, his family are, relative to other people on the reservation, quite comfortable. He has a well-worn routine throughout his shift. In the shift is 
you know, very well drawn by the author. It's very eerie. You get a real sense of what it's like to be alone at night, the overall silence, and then some noises sort of creeping in. And he attends to his inspections of the plant and the rooms at various times during the shift. And then during the rest of the shift, he writes letters and he reads and he tries to stay awake, obviously. He'd attended a boarding school as a child. His father had insisted upon it. So he's an educated man and he has this beautiful penmanship, which is why he likes to write. So this is obviously very biographical, isn't it? Yes. About her grandfather. She talks in the back about how she's tried to be faithful to her grandfather. Yeah. But the rest of the the story is fiction. There is one other character who is uh, based on a real-life person and, in fact, she has kept the real-life person's name, which I'll, I'll talk about in a minute. And, you know, not surprisingly, there are times when Thomas does drift asleep and, you know, when he falls asleep during his um, shift, he recollects past memories and he encounters some spirits. And, you know, I'm not particularly familiar at all. I'm quite ignorant of Native American history and their culture. And this certainly has inspired me to read more. But the spirits are something that come into the book So the fiddly work of doing sort of the jewel bearings in the factory, that's mostly carried out by the women. And this lovely character, Patrice Parenteau, she's nicknamed Pixie. She was nicknamed when she was at school and she hates the name. And she's one of the girls that works on the assembly line. Indeed, she's in fact the best worker on the assembly line. And Thomas, the night watchman, is her uncle. And Patrice's father is an alcoholic. He tends to come and go. And mostly the family would like him to go because he's violent. So the family very much depends on Patrice's income, which is hard for Patrice because she's quite ambitious. She's intelligent. She'd been her class valedictorian. uh, And so she believes that she's destined for something more. But she's being sort of required to contribute for them financially. Well, she completely supports her family. And in, in that respect, she is, in fact, the night watchman for her family. She sort of notices the clothes and the preoccupations of her fellow assembly line workers, many of whom are her former school friends. You know, they talk about men, they're interested in things that she's not interested in. And for her, her family is her priority. They are one of the poorest on the reservation and they have another problem. And that problem is that Patrice has an older sister, Vera, who is missing. So Vera has left the reservation to seek her fortune in Fargo and she's disappeared. Uh, And the family has not heard from her for ages. And there are some rumours on the reservation that Vera has been seen in the city with a child. And both Patrice and her mother, Zanat, have some disturbing dreams about what might have happened to Vera. So Patrice decides to take some time off work, which is quite hard to do. And she goes to Fargo, determined to find her sister. And she is met with a lot of trouble and a lot of threats. And I'm not going to go into the plot anymore. So you have these sort of twin narratives. You've got Thomas trying to save his tribe from exploitation. And you've got Patrice, who's determined to do the same thing for her sister. But it isn't a grim book at all. It's very gentle. It's humorous at times. It's quite tender. It sounds lovely. And ultimately, it's an uplifting book. And there's some wonderful characters in it. And as I said before, I I, I am 
largely ignorant of the history of the Native Americans and I'm also deeply interested in the connections that they have to nature, which are explored a bit in the book, which is just lovely. The other thing I hadn't appreciated was the connection with the Mormon community, which is explored in the book. The senator who introduced the bill to pursue native dispossession was Arthur Watkins. He was a Republican senator from Utah and he is preserved as a real character in the novel. And in the book, Thomas the Night Watchman decides that he needs to be strategic and he needs to understand the motivations of this senator. And so he starts to read the Book of Mormon so he can understand what the Mormon faith says about Native Americans. So it's, there's a lot in it. It's a, it's a big book. It's a big story. I'm not going to say any more, but yeah, uh, no, it's highly recommended. Really Great book. Great book. That sounds fantastic. What have you been reading? I think I mentioned last episode that I was in the mood for things that mirrored what's going on in our COVID-19 world because other things felt jarring to me. They just didn't feel right. So I went for a book by Molly Panter Downs called London War Notes, which is a Persephone novel, and I just had it on my shelves. Molly wrote these diaries. They're sort of every few days or, you know, once a week, and they're from the declaration that Britain was at war until uh, VE Day. Okay. So uh, I just devoured this book. I absolutely loved it. It was the perfect time to read it. So her first entry is September the 3rd, 1939, and her final entry was May the 12th, 1945, so just after VE Day. So Molly was born in 1906 and she died in 1997 and she published her first book, The Shoreless Sea, Mm. when she was 17 and it was a bestseller. Wow. And then between 1938 and 1984, she wrote 852 pieces for The New Yorker. Wow. Wow. So she was sending these articles over the seas to the New Yorker to people she'd never met, editors and um, people that she'd never met, and she just kept this up relentlessly. She's amazing. In 1947, she published One Fine Day, which is her best-known book. I haven't read that one, but it's a much-loved novel. So she was married. She had two daughters, and she lived in a 16th-century house near Surrey for over 60 years. And these London War Notes were all written for the New Yorker magazine and then they've been, they were compiled into this book. So instead of writing about the big issues of war, you know, a country being at war, she covers the quotidian, you know, the shortages of food and clothing and fabrics, rationing of various items, hoarding, stockpiling. You can see why I was drawn to this. Yeah, no, lovely. The criminal consequences of being caught, stockpiling. Apparently there were food inspectors that would come around and look in your pantry (laughs) and there were housewives who thought they'd done the right thing when war was announced and sort of stocked up a bit and then they were worried that when the food inspector came that they would be, you know, found to have committed a criminal offence. I'm sure a few people would not want their pantries to be inspected at the moment. (laughs) Or their toilet roll cupboards. (laughs) (laughs) So this was why it really resonated with me. I I just loved it. It was fascinating. Mm. All the daily events that helped the reader understand what life was really like in Britain during those years are covered. The issuing of gas masks, which sort of seemed to happen at about the second or third entry. So sort of five minutes after war is declared, everybody has their cardboard box with their gas mask. And obviously I know that 
war had been on the cards for a long period of time and things were escalating. So obviously there had been preparations, but uh, they were in some ways very geared up and very prepared. Uh, So everyone had their gas masks from two days after war was actually declared uh, and they had to carry them at all times. She talks about people sleeping in the tube stations during the Blitz. She talks about the difficulties of finding any accommodation at all in London because, of course, houses Mm. were being bombed. And then the lowering of standards where people who would previously not have considered living in a certain suburb or a certain area or a certain type of house after a while became willing to take anything, even something mm. that had been bombed and not repaired, they were willing to uh, rent just to find be able to put a roof over their heads, which I found fascinating. She talks a bit about the billeting of children out to the country mm. and the impact that had on all the villages. There's quite a bit of talk about Churchill's speeches and his meetings. He sort of didn't sort of appreciate how it appeared to the people of Britain, but he basically... He would be quiet for a while and then he would pop up Mm. in the middle of nowhere, somewhere else in the world with having a meeting with Roosevelt, which no one knew about. And uh, he did that quite a bit. So I I found that quite interesting. I guess they wouldn't have had sort of a press corps following, you know. No, no, it was all kept very secret. And and in fact, they probably didn't even have to do a schedule of where they were going to be. No, no, it was all quite different. She talks about the, I found this interesting, the shortages of paper causing problems for publishing houses. Mm. And she mentions the fact that Hatchards, which is one of my favourite bookshops in London, has had its best season in years. That was in 1941. So obviously everyone had picked up their reading um, during this time. The parallels are incredible, aren't they? Yeah, which was why I was drawn to it. Um, And she also talks about the terrible flu epidemic in December 1943, which we can all relate to. Mm. And then the end of the book is when victory is on the horizon, so it becomes more and more uplifting. And it really did make the perfect book Mm. to be reading at the moment. So I absolutely love that one. And I'm going to read more by her because I thought that was great. And then the other one that I read was just a small one, an Evelyn Waugh book. It's A Handful of Dust. I was inspired to read this by the latest episode of the Slightly Foxed podcast, which I've mentioned on our podcast. The most recent episode was all about Evelyn Waugh and his grandson uh, took part in the conversation He's incredibly knowledgeable about his grandfather and all of his books. I think he might have governance of Evelyn Waugh's literary estate. Yes, okay. He seems to have possession of all the diaries and the letters and so on. So he he was a fount of knowledge. So A Handful of Dust was written in 1934. It was his fourth novel and he wrote so many, uh, the most famous of which I think is probably Brideshead Revisited. This one starts out as a faintly comic satire and then there's a tragedy and the story takes a much darker turn which I wasn't expecting but as soon as it happened I realised that they had discussed this book on the podcast and I realised what was coming which didn't spoil it for me at all because it's so well written and it's quite gothic and it becomes uh, it's quite gripping actually. So the reader is introduced to Tony Last And he's said to be one of the happiest people in England. He's wealthy. He lives on a grand estate in the country. He has a beautiful wife. 
he has a happy marriage and a wonderful young son he adores. That's not going to go well. <laughs> it's funny you should say that, Luke. So, so, of course, the reader immediately knows that there's going to be more to the story than what appears on the surface or things are going to take, as you say, a very different turn for poor Tony. The novel is apparently partly autobiographical in that Evelyn Waugh wrote this after his wife, who was also called Evelyn, which must have been confusing. She had an affair and they divorced. And the character of Tony Last is slightly autobiographical. So the comic satire in the beginning of the story is very good, but when tragedy strikes, Tony's whole world starts to crumble and he realises that he knew nothing at all about his own life, Mm. hence the title, A Handful of Dust, which is taken from the poem The Wasteland by Mm. T.S. Eliot. T.S. Eliot, yeah. Uh, And it does go rather dark at the end in a, a rather gruesome way. So it may not be the uplifting book that some people might be after, but uh, I loved it and I, and I did find it quite good escapism and, of course, the writing is is excellent. It's the same era, isn't it, Nancy Mitford, because Evelyn Waugh and Nancy Mitford were pals, weren't they, and they exchanged. Yes, there's a, yes. There's a volume of letters, isn't there? That, yeah, yeah, I think I even have that book sitting yes. uh, within reach, actually, yes. I haven't read it, but now, of course, I want to. Yes. <laughs> same old story, so... Um, Yeah. So what else have you been diving into, Lou? Uh, Well, not much. You know, working from home, busy at home, as indeed are you with everything. It's interesting times. But look... It's a strange time. It's very strange. But look, if you were to look on social media, everyone is cooking. Social media is littered with videos of amateurs, home cooks, children. I think you actually need to call it ISO baking. Yes, ISO baking. Excellent. I will do that. (laughs) Or ISO mess because there's a lot of people making, you know, lots of kids cooking and lots of messes in kitchens. But who cares? Everybody's having a crack at it. Um, And even the professional chefs are trying to retain their relevance (laughs) by, you know, doing video after video as well. And then there's also all the lovely very funny memes about how fat we're going to be when we emerge yes. from isolation. <laughs> Which is why I have been doing my hour and a half walks every day because I'm determined I'm not going to come out of this morbidly obese, On a cu- which could easily happen. <laughs> well, it could happen to all of us, believe me. And, look, I also know I've got a couple of friends, very inspirational friends, who've taken the bull by the horns and they've been cooking up a storm for the homeless and for frontline health workers and also for the elderly who are the most isolated. And they've set up cooking rosters for all of us and collection of food rosters for people to contribute to. And so I think this is one of the really positive things. I want to join in on that, Lou. I'll talk to you about that after. Absolutely. Good. The more the merrier. Yeah. And so, I mean, that's a positive thing, I think, that's come out of this. But, you know, I am going to mention a series of cooking books today, but I, I do want to say I'm painfully aware that not everyone is in a position to be cooking up a storm at the moment. So, yeah. I think we mentioned in our Christmas special that some of the most cherished cookbooks are the ones that are accompanied by a story with the recipe, and they're certainly yes. the ones that you and I love to read. Yeah, absolutely, that you can just lie in bed and read, have them beside the bed as, as a novel. Yes, and, and I have cookbooks that I have never cooked from that are full mm. of stories. Mind you, the ones I'm mentioning today are not that case. I've, I've cooked prolifically from them. And, you know, what's lovely, I suppose, about the stories is that, you know, they're often intergenerational recipes uh, and part of a community as well. So 
The Monday Morning Cooking Club is a group of Jewish women from Sydney, Australia, and they did just that. From 2006, they met every Monday morning uh, and they cooked. I've always wanted to be a part of the Monday Morning <laughs> Cooking Club. I think a lot of people... Doesn't that just sound like the best fun it ever? It is. And there's lots of wonderful photographs and you can see that they have had an enormous amount of fun. And they aspired to create a cookbook that would reflect, I suppose, the sort of magnificent food of their Jewish community and to include all the stories that inspired the recipes and sit alongside the food. And 14 years later, they have produced four cookbooks. Wow. The first one, The Food, The Stories, The Sisterhood. They've got great names, by the way. The Food, The Stories, The Sisterhood. My copy is extremely dirty, as all... It's a good sign. Yes, all well-loved cookbooks should be dirty. Yeah. Um, and that gathered together recipes from local families and their local community. The second one, The Feast Goes On, that cast the net a little bit wider and that gathered recipes from the Jewish community from across Australia. The third one, It's Always About the Food, which I'm holding up to Virginia. It's got the girls on oh, the front cover. It's beautiful. Gorgeous I cover, I love yeah. the name. It's all Always About the Food. Yeah. This is a collection of recipes from the global Jewish community and each recipe is accompanied by a story of the person who's contributed the, the recipe or their food memories or their connection to an ingredient. And then there's an overlay where the MMCC, the uh, Monday Morning Cooking Club girls, have also included their own reflection uh, or some food notes. I just keep coming back to this book over and over again. This is the book that when I think, oh, what am I going to cook? I go to this book because the recipes are great to simplify them slightly when you're cooking for your family. But then if you're having friends over, which sadly we're not doing at the moment, you can judge them up a bit and uh, celebrate your recipes as well. I absolutely love it. Can't recommend them high enough. They've recently brought out a fourth book this year, I think which I have on order as a gift for an aspiring baker in my family. It's called Now for Something Sweet. Oh, perfect. And I sort of, I really hope that it arrives soon, but I'm not sure that I need it to be in this household <laughs> during isolation <laughs> because it's full. Leave it in the packaging for a little while. Exactly. It's full of babka and strudel and puddings oh and donuts. It looks absolutely divine, but I'm not sure that I should. And that aspiring baker, I know he is going to get stuck in. <laughs> he is. He is. But look, if you, if you can't get your hands on these books, they have the most fantastic newsletter and blog. So you can subscribe to the Monday Morning Cooking Club. I'll oh, put okay. the, we'll put the details in our show notes. And there's lots of recipes on there as well. So that's another good way, I think, for people who are feeling isolated. They can access food and cooking blogs online and that's a way to connect so yes I recommend them the only other thing I was going to mention Virginia you know we released that little duck dive episode yes with your 10 questions my 10 questions yes look we we've received so many responses it's just been so lovely and people have not only answered the questions directly they've given us little stories you know that the questions have inspired so we are definitely going to be sharing some of those responses in our next episode yeah, they're wonderful really so thank you all very much it's been lovely to hear from you um, and to connect with some of our listeners it's so much fun to read all the answers actually yeah. it is isn't it yeah 
and some really surprising answers as well. Mm. So we'll definitely mention some of them in the next episode, but we might also do another mini episode and chat about some of the answers as well. So thank you all very much. Okay, well, I think that's it from us today. Hopefully we've managed to once again master this uh, (laughs) recording from two locations and uh, we're pretty happy with ourselves. (laughs) (laughs) We did not think we could do it, but I think we've done it. So... Uh, That's it from us, and we will be back again shortly. See you soon. Bye. Bye. We really enjoyed today's episode. Thank you for listening, and thank you for all your lovely reviews too. If you want to know more about today's books or anything else we've talked about, you'll find them in the show notes, and we feature most of the books on our Instagram page too at diving underscore in underscore podcast. And if you'd like to share any books that you've been diving into, we'd love to hear from you please email us at hello at divinginpodcast.com. Bye for now. Breaking up, shaping up, working in, diving.